Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast. I'm CJ. Um, this is where we talk about creativity and creative journeys. And today we have Mr. James Everett. And this is going to be a fascinating conversation and I'm deeply looking forward to it. Um, James, I'll let you introduce yourself in a sec. But from my perspective, you are a Canadian New Zealand game designer, creator, brilliant business founder, moving across the worlds of everything from game design to what's now been called extended reality, which we'll talk about. But yeah, welcome, man. Nice to have you. Thanks very much. Real pleasure to be here. Now, we first met about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and we were both working at the excellent New Zealand game studio that at the time was mostly called She and is now mostly called Pickpock. Um, and I think we've both been on quite mad journeys since then. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How did you come to New Zealand in the first place? Uh I was working in Montreal, so I started my career in Vancouver blah, 20 years ago, 2001 it was, um, and I had gone to Montreal to work on um, some very cool, very fun uh, PlayStation 2 era titles, uh, things like Kim Possible, What's the Switch, which remains one of my favorite games I've ever worked on. Um, we did a Power Rangers game, that kind of thing, and uh, I was got an opportunity. I really love Montreal, great city. Uh, issue is winter and minus 40 celsius is a thing that i'm not a big fan of so i did a couple winters and i was looking at you know other options uh <laughs> and i got the opportunity to work with a company that said that they could you know have me on remotely and uh the opportunity there to travel and work seemed very exciting and so i went to do that turns out unfortunately that uh didn't have all the money that they said they did and so i was still looking to be somewhere else and i started talking to companies all over the world and one of the companies was uh she um here in new zealand and i met up with uh, mario and joss at the game developers conference i guess it would have been wow 2015 doesn't no no wait 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 way before that 2008 Jeez, what am I doing? What is time? Uh, yeah, 2008. And uh, they showed me a prototype of an early early prototype. It was very, very cool um, for a game that became Shatter. And so I came down to New Zealand to work with them. Uh, really enjoyed my time here. Had a great time just working with that crew and doing a, a really wide variety of stuff. And I was there as the company began to transition to Pickpock. We did a couple of mobile titles right out the gates like Bird Strike. And that proved that there was a self-publishing route there that was pretty exciting for the business. And very quickly, um, Mario and, and the team there pivoted towards that. And now that is Pickpock, you know, and, and they're fantastic. They're a wonderful crew. Uh, but I was lured back to Canada to go work on the Splinter Cell franchise to help start Ubisoft Toronto. And uh, I often say I will never be that spoiled ever again as a game designer. Uh, I was given this this task of doing what they call three C's design. So character, camera, and controls. Basically, if you touch the gamepad and Sam Fisher did it, it was something that I was responsible for. And I say responsible for, but really, like, spoiled because there were six gameplay programmers who were just phenomenal an animation director and a lead animator who were marvelous I, I, i'm just it really makes me wish I, I one day would get to do that again because it was incredible to say you know sam needs to be able to do x y and z this is why these things are important and have people look at me and go uh-huh 
cool. All right, I'll get back to you. And then come back nice. to me with things that are just so much better than than I could have imagined, um, and gave me the tools to tune things and change things and everything. So that was a it was a very interesting experience uh, working inside of a you know a very well resourced AAA team. Uh, and then the studio there uh, at the time was looking to do sort of a something something new. They were obviously supporting things like Assassin's Creed Unity and um, the Far Cry titles and things like that. Uh, and there was but there was an opportunity to actually do some new IP work. And I put my hand up for that because I was pretty excited to just have a crack at something brand new. We built a very interesting team to do that. Uh, we were part of the Games for Everyone business unit rather than at the time, I believe it was the HD games unit was, was where the AAA franchises like Splinter Cell and Assassins and Far Cry lived. Uh, games for Everyone was Just Dance, the Rabbids franchise and that kind of thing. And so for a lot of the studio, they were a little bit like, eh, that's not really what we want to be doing because we're here to make you know, the next Splinter and things like that. Um, but I was, I, for me, it was, you don't know what this is? Cool, I'll go figure that out. Uh, and so I was partnered up with uh, Matt Rose, a really great producer over there. And we were given the opportunity to start something new. And so we built a small team initially of eight people. And we were, the call kind of that we put out was, who wants to work on something that we don't know what it is uh, game jam experience preferred <laughs> because one of the one of the big challenges for us and for any team really like you, when you've got a totally blank page it's very very hard to make that kind of progress quickly and developers who are used to working on large teams when when everything gets paired back to very very small things um, it takes a while to get your head around how to operate in that fashion again and um, so we, we were joined by a merry band and off we went. And because Matt and I didn't have a, a game that we knew that we wanted to make, we, we knew what we wanted to do was fulfill our mandate of something exciting and fresh and new for an audience that skewed younger, mostly. Um, and so we built a process for prototyping every two weeks. So we, 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 it was like literally every two weeks, we, we turned out three playable prototypes and the process started with um, brainstorming and then we would pitch to each other. We would vote on those pitches. We would decide which ones we were going to try and tackle. We would, the first week was really just about figuring out what we were going to try to build in week two. And on, by the end of day Friday, the goal was always know what you're going to prototype know why you're trying to prototype that and have your tools ready to go. So stand up your Unity project or the find, in some cases we were doing board game prototypes because that was the fastest way to test the thing we were trying to test. Uh, so you want to you want to have all of your tools sitting there by the end of Friday. So you've got the weekend to sleep on it and you come in on Monday morning, you pick up your tools and go. Um, and we had a lot of fun with that process. Uh, in the end, we produced about 15 playable prototypes, uh, which was an unusual thing at Ubisoft. Usually the creative director would have a pretty clear idea of where they wanted to head, and then they would work their way towards producing a really strong pitch. Um, certainly back then, it was more common to make like what we called fake game footage, where we try to generate something that really looked like the intended game to prove whether this was something they wanted to do. In our case, we just had a bunch of pretty scrappy looking prototypes, but they were fun. Some of them were fun. Some of them were terrible. Uh, but 
in the end, we created a couple of things that got a lot of attention internally, and we pitched what became Starlink Battle for Atlas. And that was a Toys to Life game where you actually built your spaceship on out of a variety of components, um, and they turned up immediately in the game. And that was really, really neat. And one of the, for us, I think the first playtest we did with kids that made us just go, this is it. Like, this is super, super cool, was uh, a brother and sister. Um, she was the pilot. Uh, we had a controller that was literally 3D printed parts. We we're using. I wish we had USB-C back then. We had micro USB, so it was a little bit like you had to get the alignment right to plug them in. It was a little bit weird. But she was the pilot and had a mission and she was flying the thing and her brother was there and he was being effectively the engineer because she was like, oh, the shields aren't going down. And he'd breach over and literally just pull the piece off of the ship, the weapon that needed to be changed. Oh no, you need this. And he would pull that off and swap the other one in and she'd just say, thanks. And she was just focused on the screen flying. We're like, okay, that is... There was something really special there. Um, yeah, so I, I had a really great time doing that. We got that greenlit, and at some point in there, I was contacted by um, Greg Broadmore at Weta Workshop to go and... He said, I've got a weird thing. I'd really like you to come work on it with me because we'd, we'd done a little bit of pitch work together previously. But he couldn't tell me what it was. And I said, dude, I've got this new IP and this great team, and it's a lot of fun. I, I, you know, you got to tell me more than that, because I'm staying in Toronto. And in the end, he finally sent me a press release, I think, when Magic Leap raised their Series B. Um, he sent me the press release and said, it's for these guys. And I went, oh, okay. So I did a bit of a dig. What's this Magic Leap business? What's the deal? Oh, this is like augmented reality but head worn oh my goodness and a bunch of pieces sort of fell into place in my head very very quickly that it was clear to me that this was the future i didn't know when the future was going to arrive they didn't know when the future they didn't even know when they were going to ship their first product they had ideas about that but you know reality being what it is that didn't quite line up um but there's this really rare opportunities just sitting there in front of me to go and work on a new a brand new medium you know and that for a designer that never happens like you know once in a career once in a lifetime maybe something really that different comes along so i in the end i, I talked to my partner and she was like well you've always said good things about wellington you really enjoyed your time there and toronto hadn't been terribly kind to her um, at the time she was a school teacher and uh, one of the worst things about the way teachers are treated I think around the world is they're especially in the, in the sort of earlier you know younger childhood education space teachers are expected to be rooted in place you know you only get seniority within a school or a district by just being there over time when she went to Toronto for over 12 months she I, th I think she taught for about three days total it was terrible um and this you know nobody should be put through that um so we came down to new zealand and and it was really great it was it was the hardest decision i think i've ever made professionally um and i made some pretty tough ones over time because i've i've 
until recently, anyways, <laughs> um, I've never been pushed out of a position. I've I've always I've been in which is in the games industry is is actually quite rare. Uh, lots of projects get canceled. I've had very few canceled out from under me. I've had very few of those sort of big dropout moments where things just kind of go completely sideways. I've I've been very fortunate in that regard. Um, but here I am helping lead a team that is making a brand new IP and a. a in a space that's just super neat and saying no to that and walking away from that was, was the really, really tough call. Um, in the end, I think it was the right call, uh, for sure. I'm certainly very happy now. Um, but it was, it was a very tough call to make. So yeah, that's how I ended up in New Zealand the first time or the first time and now the second time. And that was a very long 10 minute wandering story there. Sorry. (laughs) That was excellent. That was exactly what I was after. It was brilliant. It's really interesting to hear you talking about, um, especially at the time the Ubisoft version of essentially rapid prototyping, right? Um, We've been around quite a lot of tech startups. And over time, um, almost regardless of what product you're making, I think, the thing I've seen is that the companies that can master essentially cadence and the faster the cadence that you can operate at without the wheels coming off and from that, the faster you can learn, I guess, that absolutely seems to be one of the cores of just... um, how early stage startups especially get through their first few years um obviously cash runway is the most basic thing when you run out of money you're gone but the second thing that i've seen from a lot of the companies that have been around it's simply like can you can you really iterate and learn at a cadence that outpaces everybody else and when you can get to that speed you you really do outpace the competition and it's not even necessarily through having the talent although talent is super important it's just from the core operating rhythm that you can get to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for a long time, I, I said, and I still do think of myself this way. I think of myself as a shipping designer. That's really, I like to ship, you know, and for a, a long time, I was shipping on average a game a year, um, you know, and that obviously <laughs> doesn't really happen when you're, when you're operating in the AAA space. Um, and when you're operating in, the you know the the edge case of xr or whatever where we literally you know we couldn't ship until the hardware shipped uh and so that was a very different experience but i think the the core prototyping of the rapid iteration cycles is just so so important there's a, a really wonderful workshop um that's part of the game design workshop at gdc called um uh what's it called uh, sissy fight yeah, it's just the Sissy Fight Workshop, and it, which is a card game. It's a well a game played with some cards on it. It's a very very simple game, um, and it's it's intended to emulate uh, kids fighting in a schoolyard basically. But it's more it's it's not like fisticuffs. It's really just like kind of putting each other down. Um, I am I've run the workshop myself a few times and really like it. Although I, I've changed the initial theming a bit to be less negative a few times over. Um, and I'll probably keep doing that. But as a workshop, it's really fascinating because particularly for people who don't do a lot of game design day to day, like the, the hands-on you know, nuts and bolts sort of stuff, you, st- you start off with playing this game and going, okay, I understand why the mechanics of this game give me a certain aesthetic outcome. Uh, I think it's important to note is that it's really, it's designed to teach the um, MDA framework, the Mechanics Dynamics Aesthetics framework, uh, which is Robin Hunicky and Mark LeBlanc. And I believe there's at least a third author I'm probably 
I'm blanking on, unfortunately. Um, and that workshop is really, okay, so mechanically, you, you, these are these are the game rules that you're doing. The dynamics are the interaction between the players and the players and the rules. And the aesthetic outcome is how does this make you feel? Does it make you feel like kids calling each other names on a schoolyard? You know, and the answer is yes. And very, very quickly, like cliques start to develop and all kinds of stuff because you're trying to like get people. It's really goofy, but it's fun and it's simple. And it really gets that sense of, yeah, this is kind of what this does. Then everybody goes away and brainstorms a bunch of ideas. And what you're trying to do is come up with a new setting or theme for the game and then change the rules of the game to create that aesthetic outcome. And people come up with all kinds of fun stuff. We, I think the first time I did it, we did a... Uh, we, we wanted to make out a cooperative experience. So we, we were like, okay, let's just flip this thing on its head. And it's like, what's, what's like cooperative? And it was schools of fish. So there was like, we introduced a shark mechanic so that the shark would actually try it. It was a, a non-player character and it could try and attack and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, it's just really, really neat. Um, kind of simple setup, but you, what, what you end up doing in that exercise is changing the mechanics as quickly as you can to try and reach that feeling and that aesthetic outcome. And a lot of people will get bogged down in talking about the details of the thing and whatnot, rather than changing the rules and play testing immediately. And I think that, that that's a very simple exercise, but it, it really opens people's eyes to just what it means to make decisions, evaluate and test those decisions quickly. Um, and I, yeah, can't can't say enough good things about that and i've, I've really i'm gonna end up uh i think i'm gonna run that workshop at the new zealand games festival in april um for groups of kids actually which will be really fun i think i've got some like seven to twelves and some teenagers for a couple of different sessions that'll be really fun so nice. i need i need a new i knew i need a new uh thing so it's not kids in a schoolyard though before that happens because i'm actually doing That's this with kids thing, nah it's, it's yeah <laughs> That's really smart. That's it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. There, um, I think there there are variations and iterations on those types of process in so many different fields. Theater is the same thing. You try and stand something up on its feet as fast as possible, and then you go at it, and you yes and everything, which is the positive side you were talking about. Um, really, some of the military stuff that we've done, um, they have a really set core algorithm for what happens if you get dropped in the jungle and you don't know where you are. And it's literally just this really iterative algorithm where you're making small rapid steps and always moving and always learning and always responding to your environment. And that's how you get there. So you have all these kind of, I, I suspect things that orbit the same core process of learn fast, absorb fast, change fast. Don't let the details or the surface details really tie you down. Try not to be a bureaucracy, which we might talk about later as well. But yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, so what I want to do is I want us to jump through time and reorder the universe a little, if you don't mind. Um, that was a really, really excellent narrative around how you came to New Zealand. And then I know that the next part of your New Zealand journey actually relates to a lot of the extended reality stuff that we might talk about a little bit later. So do you mind now if we jump into um, very easy, um, low-grade catch-up of what have we been enjoying recently and what are things that kind of formed us a little bit in terms of experiences. So I, I always find this is a really cool thing to talk about because um, it's it's the most straightforward way to figure out what's on someone's mind. I'm, um, what have you been enjoying or doing recently? 
I think even in terms of experiences and 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 art or music or books or games or, or something or really anything. Yeah, I. It's been very strange making the transition to working from home full time. Uh, I'm I'm very. I'm a very social critter, so getting out and about and, and being in an office with people is usually my preferred thing, and now just dealing with everyone through a screen is not optimal, but it's okay. I'm getting there. Uh, I think the, the stuff that I've most recently enjoyed, you know, it's, it's been kind of going back to some stuff. I, I Just like everyone, I have a backlog of <laughs> books and films and games and things that is just a mile long. So... I'm actually playing Dishonored 2. Um, finally getting back, to getting into that after like all this time because it came out like 2016 or something. It's an extremely dangerous topic. I saw it in our notes that we were preparing. Um, I will literally talk about Dishonored 2 for hours. I am fascinated <laughs> to hear how you found it. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, uh, but the Clockwork Mansion, and I know I'm going to be repeating what I'm sure many other people have said, is one of the single most brilliant pieces of level design I have ever experienced. I just boggled my mind as I started to see how the the nesting nature of that, and it all works. Like it's all designed in such a way that you are, yep, that actually functions in that way. It would be horrendously expensive to build that sort of thing, but you can see how you would build it and because it's digital, away you go. So yeah, I, I really, you know the arcane it's interesting i go all the way back with that stuff as well because i for me there's a really clear through line uh which is harvey smith going back to the original deus ex harvey was the first professional developer that i ever spoke with um back back in the day when icq was a thing I found his ICQ number uh, on his blog. Well, wasn't was it a blog? I don't know. It was his webpage or something. And I just like pinged it. I was 17, 16, 17. And uh, I just pinged this dude on, on ICQ and said, hey, what's up? <laughs> and he's like, who are you? <laughs> and I said, hey, I, well, I think I want to be a game designer. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And, and he took time and chatted with me about it. And it was really wonderful. And that cracked for me the the sense that oh these are people like this is actually a thing games are made by people you know that was a real it's, it's a really interesting point for someone who grew up in new zealand because i i remember the 80s and 90s very well too well um that absolute background sense here that all things um, um films games were these mysterious things that were made in other universes mostly america and there was there was a a genuine cognitive block around the idea that games especially were something you could make in new zealand mm. mario who you talked about earlier who was the founder of she i th- i genuinely think the first time that i started encountering mario was the first time i genuinely realized that you could actually like make games and stuff in new zealand there was a genuine thing of these are things that happen elsewhere mm. um just to reset the scene for um some of our listeners so we're talking in general about the game Dishonored 2, which comes from Arcane Studios, which is in games a very famous gaming studio. And the two of its lead creatives, I believe, are Rafael Colantonio, who I think is the founder, and Harvey Smith, who, if you are into games and game design, is a legendary game designer who played a part in some absolute key titles over the past sort of 25 years. 
and Dishonored 2, um, it almost defies description, but it's broadly set in a sort of Victorian alternate world in which whale oil is one of the main things that drives the economy. And you play a supernatural assassin and you are deeply involved in essentially a combination of high level politics and low level street subterfuge and going through these incredibly ornate and beautifully designed levels that the term in games I think is is that they they are very much systems based environments where you may have a quest that you are supposed to achieve you're supposed to assassinate someone or do something but along the way you're in an environment that has a lot of very complex interacting dynamics and you have a surprising amount of freedom within these environments to change the outcomes and play the way you want to play and do really interesting things is that a fair way of kind of starting it into the dishonored experience absolutely yeah i think that that sums it up quite well the you know the game i mentioned earlier deus ex um there's a whole school i guess you could call it of game design that used to be referred to as sort of the looking glass school of design and looking glass was another studio um, predating Ion Storm, where Deus Ex was made, that did made games that were very systems driven, very focused on creating emergent play. So, um, uh, Thief: The Dark Project, you know, the original Thief, which is just again a, a very very influential game for me. Um, I and and I think one of the main reasons that I consider I, for a long time, I described myself as a systems designer and I still think nice. in that way is that I'm, I'm a very systemic designer. So I wanted, I want to know how the pieces fit together, how they influence each other. Uh, and that, yeah, that's, that was very, very big deal. I think early on for me. Um, yeah, they're really fantastic games. No, I, I agree. And it's interesting to me, like, like I think one of the, one of the reference points for a lot of people recently has probably been Westworld. And I think one of the possibilities that systemic design offered was um, other games in different formats. They can feel sometimes like the first iteration of Westworld where you're going through the marionette show and everything is a puppet and everything, essentially, if you push its button, it will say the same thing every time. And a lot of games, for very good reasons, are essentially built that way. And the idea of a a more fluid and complex environment where nothing is the same every time and you get the interaction of different subsystems and all of a sudden instead of that city guard always being standing in that same place and always saying the same thing as you pass well maybe you did something earlier in the game that meant the city guard got called away to investigate the disturbance and that starts to open up those type of systems and I, i always thought that was a like it's so hard to do well but when it does work the extent of the living environment that you find yourself in, even really in single player games, is fascinating. Um, it's really interesting to hear about, for you, the Clockwork Mansion. Because I think most people that I've known who have loved Dishonored 2, and I am deep in this camp, they tend to find the Clockwork Mansion and Crack in the Slab, which is a slightly later level, the most fascinating ones because they're both, in terms of game design, they're driven by a, a central conceit. I think the Clockwork Mansion, it's fair to say, is a giant mansion that rearranges itself as you move through it. And it's very hard to capture how incredible this is when you go into it, but it, but it, it strikes everyone as just, oh my god, this is incredible. And a crack in the slab, which is later on, is driven by a, a different but similar thing of here is a core concept. We're going to build our, our entire 
level and systems around it. For me, um, the first time I went through Dishonored 2, and, and by the way, spoiler warning, I've played Dishonored six times. I've completed Dishonored 2 every which way you can because I'm maniacally obsessed about it, which is why we're going down this rabbit hole. Um, I really enjoyed the design of those levels. Later on, I came to love the environmental storytelling, and that's part of what I tend to look for, for for me, even though I obviously enjoy games a great deal, I tend I tend not to care as much about the design mechanics or the game mechanics beyond the fact that I sort of simply want them to work. And that's partly because professionally I'm not looking at those mechanics trying to go, oh, how could I do this? The story environments, the idea that Dishonored 2 does have a, a, a strong sort of central narrative thread and that sort of stuff. But when you just wander around the world and you look in the odd corners and you open the drawers and you find yourself in the strange alleyways and stuff and every single aspect of the art design, the world construction, everything is continually telling you this immersive story about what this world is, who these people are. And there's a, there's a level later on called the Royal Conservatory, which does that for me, where the actual level setup is relatively straightforward. There is a very Victorian museum that has been taken over by evil forces. And outside the museum, the men of the city watch are basically standing on guard. And when you interact with them, you you feel like you're in a very dishonored type environment. As soon as you enter into the Royal Conservatory, you're in a different world. And it's a mad world. It's, it's the, the world of a Victorian museum that has been taken over by people who view reality in a different way. And as a story transition, an environmental story transition, and suddenly you're in the space and you're going, bloody hell, this is insane. And I loved it. And, and I, I responded to it so strongly. And on my sort of third and fourth and fifth replays, I love the Clockwork Mansion, for instance. And I, I, I loved figuring out how to do the pure ghost run through that because there's a wonderful trick to it. Um, but the Royal Conservatory and that environmental storytelling is what really sticks with me. And it's an interesting thing for what we might talk about later, this, this, this thing of um, the different paths and the different emotional responses that you can have to an environment, a set design challenge, a story, all these different factors feeding into a absolutely magnificent game. Yeah, I, that, that continues to be a thing that blows my mind as I get in and, and the amount of that stuff that comes from the team as they build things is really fascinating. There was always stuff, every game I've, I've worked on, you know, uh, as I say, I tend to focus on systems and mechanics and those sorts of things. I, I care deeply about the narrative take on, on things. And when I've had the opportunity to spend time working on that, I've enjoyed it a lot. But what always blows me away is within the constraints of the mechanical design, how much artists and designers and everyone on the team really sound designers in particular uh, when they're given the time in the room to do it will just blow your mind you start to discover things about the game that they've created that fit that you didn't mm -hmm. expect and that's a really wonderful moment when you you know you're walking through an environment you're like wait a second what what who did that okay that bit of graffiti is that what i think that is oh are you doing a call nice okay that's really nice. cool and you just you know and that that's what happens i think when you've got people who are 
they're invested in the project they understand the vision they understand the the narrative goals and i think it's one of the big challenges that any team has right it, it's a, fundamentally it's a communication challenge of keeping everyone on that same page and making sure everybody's aligned so that you know the the piece of graffiti or something is the you know does fit and and bonus points if it you know, harkens to something else and reinforces the environment. Um, but that's, you know, it was certainly one of the challenges I saw at, at Ubisoft with these really big teams is that out of necessity, many, many people will work on an environment. And to make sure that each person has that same level of understanding of the game, the goals, the vision, and everything else is, is a huge challenge. And it's uh, for... For me, I was much more used to working on smaller teams, even you know, 10, 20, 30 people. It was a lot easier for me as a design lead within those teams to give direct feedback to people about things and or, or receive that feedback from other people why they wanted to do things in a certain way while still being a, a contributor to the game, right? Like building levels or, or what have you. Um, once I got into the the larger AAA side of things, like watching a creative director basically just have meetings all the time, I was like, wow, that, that seems kind of ridiculous. And then the deeper into the project we got, I'm just like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because your your job is effectively carry the vision and communicate the vision and bring everybody along on that ride with you. And it's often not, at least in my experience with, with you know good creative directors, it isn't even, it's not about being dictatorial or, or whatnot. It's in the best instances, it's often being a synthesizer, right? It's being that catalyst within the group because you're going to be getting that feedback all the time of, Hey, this isn't working. This is working. That needs to change because of these constraints, this reality. And so you're, constantly moving between all of those challenges and all of those directions uh, and trying to be you know that that consistent source of truth for the experience it's very very challenging and something that I certainly have struggled with over time um, and, and yeah really it's really neat to watch that sort of stuff happen and so when you have that opportunity where people really do get it, and you get that feeling from, you know, Arcane's games through and through. Um, uh, you know, I've been playing Hades. Hades also, you know, a different scale of team. Obviously, that's I think I think the Supergiant team on that is about like twelve or fifteen people or something. I'm probably maybe I'm underselling it. Maybe it's twenty. But regardless, a smaller team. But just the the attention to detail and and the care that put is put into every corner of that that world. You know, it's we're talking about you know things that have been exciting recently and the other you know, uh, i really enjoy novels i do you know read a whole bunch of different stuff but recently i got completely sucked in to the inheritance trilogy by uh, nk jemison um, nice yeah she's a phenomenal writer like i uh i hadn't heard of her work till i guess it was last year um i picked up the her Broken Earth trilogy, which is a more recent one, the, the Inheritance set is, I think, was her first trilogy. And she has a way of, you know, we're talking about world detail. Her world detail is unbelievable. And more than anything, it's consistent. 
it's that internal coherency. And I think that's one of the hardest things in, in any, you know, when you're, when you're making a, a, a fantastical or a science fictional or just an unreal, you know, a world that doesn't exist, maintaining that internal coherence is so difficult. And when you nail it, that's what pulls you in, right? You're just like, oh, that the, the characters, the world, everything responded in a way that was internally consistent, made total sense within this environment, uh, and was very, you know, I, yeah, I, she blows me away because it's sort of world building is one of those dangerous things that people can absolutely just you know rabbit hole on and okay yeah you built a big fancy world and it's got lots of moving parts and that's cool um but you spent all your time telling me about that world and not actually telling me a story and not not like creating characters who inhabit that world her ability to build these worlds that are just remarkable on their own terms but then populate them with incredible characters whose relationships to the worlds the rules of those worlds like the inheritance trilogy the gods walk among us um the gods and godlings are out there and in the first book and this is no no spoilers because it is just kind of the beginning of the first book but they have literally enslaved some of the gods the, the people have and it is brutal it is incredible the way that she tells that story and each book in the trilogy um follows a new character who has a very very different set of perspectives than the character you know you you naturally sort of fall into that space of um with well-written characters and, and great protagonists of you really like that character you know you're like wow i understand you know, even when they're making shitty choices you're like okay well i get it like i know that's uh okay but i get it you know um and so when she changes that perspective and gives you a whole new character and all of a sudden you're seeing the world through their eyes you're like wow okay wait wait the things that i assumed you know just turns you inside out um so good yeah nice and i think it's really interesting to hear like like i think a lot so much of it comes down to trust right in 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 all these experiences and i i think we probably agree that almost all of at least entertainment is really just converging on the idea of how, how do you spark experiences but all these experiences very early on as you enter into an experience whether it's a book a game an environment something there's a trust factor where pretty quickly you either fundamentally trust that the storyteller or the world or whatever is consistent and is good and is going to support you through an awesome experience or you don't this is one thing we um I used to do quite a lot of film script consulting and the problem in almost all film scripts is in the first 15 pages because you've either got me or you've lost me. And there really is a thing there of I either I feel like I'm in the hands of a creator or a guide or who knows what they're doing and loves what they're doing and is going to offer that to me. Or I feel like, as you say, someone feels like they have a lot of information that they're really interested in and they really want to download onto me. And if the first maybe 50 pages of your book are the wonderful backstory of the lineage of the 27 generations of the kings and all the detail that I loved with my world building, and my advice going back is almost always, look, really give us a character, put them into this world, and have them move with purpose and intent, 
and ideally make them someone that we connect with and the world will just kind of flow around them and it will be consistent almost in the background which i think is what i found with the nk jimkins and stuff that i did i i haven't read the trilogy that you're reading now but there's a confidence i feel like i'm in good hands rather than look look at my stuff look at all my stuff here's all my research here's all my shit it's like yeah there's there's a there's a gut difference there i think sometimes yeah absolutely absolutely and you know it's at at a at a really basic level having a character that you care about who can guide you into that space uh, you know you're it's just a, it's it's a human connection that's where it starts yes. right is that you've got to in order for you to give a shit about something you there needs to be a a, a human connection there and so yeah starting with a strong character uh, who's who's understandable who's relatable, even if they are a god or a king or a queen or whoever it is, it's sort of like, well, that's a, that's a person that is literally about as far removed from me as possible in so many ways, but they're, they're still a person and I can make that personal connection with them. And in the case of, you know, um, books, certainly in films and, and other media where it's more of an absorption rather than an interaction, um, the interaction is still there. You know, games are, are fundamentally an interactive medium. But as someone who grew up just like consuming novels, I always felt a real, the, the good, you know, the work that I enjoyed reading the most were ones where I felt like I was having a bit of an interaction with these characters um by trying to understand them right by just like just like you know yeah. we're having the conversation we're having now right we're trying to understand each other and and so it, it is more of a it, it's less of a dialogue i guess in the case of, of reading a book but those are the things that just once they touch you 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 kind of you're there for that and it never ceases to amaze me how deeply a character can pull me into a, a, a different place and a different space nice. and a different headspace. And this is, by the way, you're an absolute master at this. Uh, this is a beautiful segue to something I wanted to talk about, which is it's always interesting when we're talking about things that have touched us recently. Um, I think everyone who exists in any creative space, probably anyone at all, when you're growing up, there are formative experiences exactly like you're talking about that grab you in different ways and we talked about this earlier i i suspect that you might have a book and i might have a game that just took us somewhere else when we were young and mm. i'm very interested for us both to kind of share those sort of things because they they are so formative mm. um what what shaped you in <laughs> into this I, this creature that we see before us oh dear um <laughs> i mean yeah i it's interesting reading for me was i remember it being a struggle I remember my my mum, bless her heart, she was so patient with me to get me over that line of, of doing that initial mm-hmm. reading when I was, I don't know, four or five or whatever. Um, she might have regretted that the year or two following when I started to read everything I could get my hands on and the number of books that I would rip, like we would go to the library and I was only, a, like there was a... I think there was a limit you could take out five books or something from the local public library and i would always come back with five books and uh and i would devour them in a week or two and then you know um go back for more and even when we were out fishing my, my family is a um you know i grew up in rural 
Vancouver Island in British Columbia. So we spent a lot of time out on the water and out in the bush and stuff like that. And I would just always have a book with me, <laughs> you know, fishing was always kind of boring books solved that problem. Um, <laughs> And, but, but I remember the, the book that sort of hit me the most because I went through a period of reading, you know, sort of the, the golden age, like the Isaac Asimov era sort of sci-fi stuff and whatnot. But the book that turned my head inside out the most that I read probably far too young for it was Dune by Frank Herbert. Nice. And there are a lot of issues with that book, you know, and I won't get into all of them, but it's fairly significant. And I'm, I suspect, in fact, I'm, I'm quite certain that a good chunk of that went right over my head at the age of, I think I was 10 when I read it. Um, and that was a big one. But what Herbert did in that book around his world building, his characters and whatnot, at 10 years old, you don't have a sense of the wider world, especially, I think, as a very sheltered youth in a small town. Um, you know, I didn't. I was watching the news occasionally and I was kind of fascinated by how the world worked, but Dune set up this world and these politics and these systems and economies and everything else that was just like, that was probably, if I was to look at it, I think that's probably the, the book, the experience that maybe kind of kicked off a bunch of the way that I think in systems, because it is, it is a very systemic book. The pieces are all described how the navigators guild, you know, cause it enables or disables the commerce and, and transportation around the universe the the nature of the spice the um all of the politics between the great houses that was my first real exposure i think to uh you know a political landscape of some kind and it's it's abstracted it is by its nature a fictional like it's fiction it's all of those things but at 10 years old, it was like cracking my brain open and just pouring a, a set of models in there that I then was able to start to chew on and pick apart. Uh, and I ended up reading, I read the first three books and I thought that was it. And then I found out, I, I remember I was, I think I was 15 or 16 and I discovered there was three more of these things. Whoa, do they go off the rails in some very interesting ways, right? Like it just gets deeply weird um and and very problematic uh but yeah i think at 10 that was this this like what what is this this is this is how this is how the politics of a world and and or politics of this universe like people are making choices not based on personal need Although that's that is a big part of it, but they're making choices generationally, hmm. which was another thing that really stuck with me and continues to stick with me this day. And and one of the reasons why I am probably so intensely frustrated by politics in in most of the world is that the the short term thinking around cycles is just like it's 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 so damaging. Um, but yeah, so that's Dune. Dune did a did a bit of a number on me apparently. <laughs> Nice, that's fascinating. I something that, that you said that's really interesting to me. There's um, there's a few J.G. Ballard um, books as well from that era, and one of the things that I I found rereading them recently because I um, I was doing some research, they feel in some ways ridiculously modern because you're absolutely right. They are thinking about ecosystems and ecologies, and both both physical interacting systems, but you're right, political systems, but all 
also the effect on minds and imagination. Mm. And just the idea that all of these things in some way could be connected and have effects on each other. Um, most of the other golden age science fiction that came before that, which is very much really kind of big brain physicists writing sometimes quasi dissertations on awesome physical phenomena. They, they don't have that flavor at all. They don't have the sense of here is an environment and a set of ecosystems that are undergoing radical change in some way. And, and you're right. How do we think in terms of generations? Yeah. I, um, I came to June quite late. I, I read a lot of science fiction when I was younger, very much as you did. I just completely missed June. And I think it would literally have come down to the idea of my mum would take me to a particular secondhand bookstore in Onihanga, which is in South Auckland, New Zealand. And the same thing, I would I would pillage it every couple of weeks, go home. And it would literally have been probably that the week that I went in one time and went for the science fiction books, June probably wasn't on the shelf. It was one of those random sort of things. So I read June when I was much older. And... I agree with the problematic aspects. I, I there's there's all that stuff, but especially compared to books of that time, it feels so much more like something driven by an overriding philosophy and humanity. And he has something to say that is wildly relevant in our modern world, in a way that I I, I suspect a lot of the golden age stuff, um, really, if you're being mean doesn't have that direct relevance because almost to a man those older writers assumed that by now our problem would be how do we get past the solar system <laughs> and that's not where frank herbert really is no yeah. no cool. he's he's out somewhere else and and you're right it is almost to a man because when you read like um and mccaffrey's work or octavia butler like the, you know they're the sensibility is just so different and yes. and so much so much more interesting you know um i and and i think everybody certainly goes through those phases right where you just get obsessed by certain authors and and you know you read all their stuff i got really into asimov for a while and the, the foundation series i was like this is amazing and then i tried you know at, at 12 or 13 or whatever foundation was blowing my mind. And then I tried rereading one of them a little while ago. And I was like, okay, that, that, yep. It's like going back and watching the cartoons you really liked as a kid, yes. you know? Although yeah. I, I think to be fair, having watched some modern cartoons now, things like Shira and whatnot, I feel like that's going to hold up really well. Whereas <laughs> my, my, the GI Joe cartoons, I was really keen on when I was a kid. Cause I could almost never see them. Like I had three channels yeah. when the weather was good kind of thing. Um, and and I remember, although a lot of Animaniacs still holds up real well, to be fair. <laughs> I think Animaniacs is is wildly ahead of its time. But like my my entire primary school, which is um, essentially like grades one through five, it was taken over by a black market racket and GI Joe um, figures and figure parts for like three years. <laughs> Every like like the entire place and and everyone watched that cartoon when they could. And obviously going back now, you go they created a cartoon to sell toys, and boy did it work. But that's kind of the end of it. Like that that's it. Yeah, yeah the, the, like literally the cloakroom in in break and recess, there was a guy called Derek, and he had cornered the market on the little guns that come with the G.I. Joe figures. <laughs> and he'd charge you like twenty cents and there was this whole back and forth and this whole economy going on that was created entirely by that show. Um and and that's kind of all the outcome you can say out of out of those things. Yeah. So I I have a lot of um I have a lot of affection and respect for the idea that literally um, 
very broadly speaking, sort of after the Jules Verne sort of era, maybe the 20s through to the 50s, a bunch of guys, and it was almost all guys, who almost all had a math science focus, um, were largely in communication with each other um, and and were focused around those really small number of magazines. And they were writing what they felt were um, boundary-breaking, incredible stories that were trying to push the boundaries of the universe. I, I, I love that and I respect it and it's wonderful. I absolutely agree that if you go back um, and try and read, even with a generous eye, these in some respects do not feel like stories or they feel like the memory of things that were interesting to you when you were 10 but they do not necessarily for me at least as a personal experience they don't grip me anymore and part of it i think is because they're almost purely abstract concept and idea driven mm. and as for for me at least as i get older and crankier um i'm always I, i'm much more driven by the the more human side of that um, with with authors, you talk about binges. Um, I, I go in these mad deep dives into, especially female crime writers. There's an Irish writer called Tana French, who um, she's telling crime stories, but that's almost an aside. What she's really doing is she's telling stories about life in Ireland, and every single one of her main characters has some deep knot right in their guts that gets ripped out of them during the course of their stories. And I, it, I think it's reasonable to say that the, these, are, these are stories written by female writers that to a huge extent male writers would struggle to write. There, there, there are genuine, very broadly speaking, there are genuine differences in approach um, across writers. And I read Tana French and I just feel this, this um, incredible energy, this emotional energy that is grabbing me by the gut and going, you are coming with me on this story. And what someone like Isaac Asimov would, would say is, I'm brilliant, here's a brilliant idea, let's go and enjoy this brilliant idea together. And to me, those, those are fundamentally different experiences. Mm. And as I get older, I move more and more towards the first type, the gut. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that, that sense of just, I wonder as well if some of that, you know, that combination of age and understanding is actually a desire to understand yourself. You know, I, yes. I certainly for me, I, in my twenties, everything was about the external world, like everything, um, and it was it was really about like what am i doing how is the world impacting me how am i impacting the world and and the the reflection was not internal really at all uh i didn't you know for, and and to my detriment i think uh you know i didn't really i didn't i didn't try and work on myself i was i guess i don't think happy is the right word but i was i was I didn't consider that I was a I was a part of the thing to be worked on. I was my profession was, you know, I wanted to be a better game designer. I wanted to be a better martial artist. I wanted, to, you know, but those were things that were external to me that I could improve at by practicing the skill, right? So it was all about practicing the skill, executing the idea, you know, and I like I say I still I do still like to think of myself as a shipping designer. I like to ship. I like to get stuff done. I like to get it out there in the world because until it's in the world, I can't validate it, right? When it's only in my head, 
it's 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 just mine um and it's not it's not out there to be examined by other people and, and whatnot and so i think the, the yeah certainly the big change for me coming into my late 30s has been and and holy crap i mean i'm i'm going to be banging on this drum and and like a million other people have but boy is therapy helpful uh you know find yourself a therapist you can work with strongly recommended um that has helped me unpick a bunch of things in 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 how i approach myself and be kinder to myself because wow was i really not kind to myself for a very long time still working on that but um you know and and so with all these stories i I, for a long time, found myself, you know, the only place that I felt comfortable with those kinds of, I don't even know if I would call them conversations, was with books, right? Because the book was an external thing. It was a guide to a place that I was uncomfortable going on my own. Um, And so, yeah, when you find these books that, that can speak to you in that way, it's just remarkable how it makes you you know feel and think and i think that's such a rare thing in games you know games because we have so much age or in most cases the a game is really about the agency of the player right and i remember the the first there's actually two very formative experiences for me in montreal that were the first time where i felt like Aside from, you know, things like Deus Ex and, and Thief and whatnot, those those were these great systems-heavy things with wonderful worlds, and, and it was really interesting to have those experiences. But they weren't, they still weren't personal. Um, and in Montreal, for a while, there was the, um, and the Kokoromi Collective is still kind of around. It's, um, uh, there's the four of them, um, and Heather and Phil and... Um, Oh, Damien and oh my god my brain this is the worst anyways um, but they they threw these parties called Gamma um, which is Game Art Montreal uh, Game Art Media Montreal yeah but the, anyways the Gamma parties were amazing happened once a year and the whole deal with Gamma was people would make games for the event and to a very specific set of constraints uh, the first Gamma was uh, because it was Gamma 1 it was one button games and uh, Gamma 2 was Gamma 256 and you had to make a game that fit maximum 256 by 256 pixels. And uh, Jason Rohr, um, who's a really remarkable game designer uh, and his work focuses on very interesting different kinds of spaces than, than, than most commercial work. Um, but he made a game what was it called? Uh, Passage. And Passage was, I think it was 256 by 64 pixels high. And you walk from left to right. And you, because of the, and the reason that it's like this really narrow passage is that you start off as, um, you, you start off sort of teenager-ish, maybe a young adult. But as you walk, with every step you age and it really was this game about the choices that you can make in life because you could go you could meet someone and they would follow you if you made the wrong choices and went in the wrong direction they could get stuck 
and you would leave them behind. You could find treasure chests that just had stars in them, and maybe those were events, but they were often off the main path, and so doing those would take more time away from you. And it was this moment of just playing it, and everyone at that party, like it's a huge party, right? There's like, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 people, something. Um, and it's projected up on this big screen and there's just the gamepad sitting there and there's five or six other games around. And I remember, you know, I was going around to play all the games and I walked up to this one and there was a small group of people and they were all waiting to see who would play it next. And they watched me pick up the controller and they're watching my face. I'm like, okay, why is everyone kind of interested in what I'm doing? And they're waiting, they, what they were waiting to see was when I got it, when I understood what the mechanic of the game was, when I understood the choices that were being, that I was making, how they would impact my, you know, my progression and, and my, my trip through the life of this game. And uh, it, I think I was damn near crying by the end of it. It was, it was just remarkable. And Everyone just wanted to talk about their experience and what they really wanted to see as well, because they'd only, you know, it's, it's a party and there's a lot of people. And so you, you don't want to hog the control. You want everyone to have a chance at doing this. Um, so everyone wanted to talk about their experience and the different choices that they had made. And then they would instantly shut up this moment, like someone else got close to the controller who hadn't played the game before and they wanted to see what they did, you know, and it was really amazing. And that was the first game one of the first games I remember feeling like this really personal connection with um, that was that, that had that sense like of the other things. And the other one in Montreal that did a similar thing to me um, was the demo, the early stages of Fez. Um, ah, right. Yeah. So um, Phil, uh, Phil Fish, who's the designer and uh, director and writer of that um, with uh, Renaud Badar, who um, another just, absolutely brilliant lovely human um but phil i was over at phil's house uh we'd worked together at artificial mind and movement um and i was hanging out at phil's house and he said hey i want you to can you check this out like just tell me what you think and i sat there and again it was a bit of a house party thing like i was and i'm, I'm kind of a raging extrovert normally i'd just be hanging out talking to lots of people and i i ignored the world for like I played that thing three times through because it was the first game I played where I could I knew the creator well enough as a friend that I could see and feel them reflected in the work you know and it was it, it was really impactful it, it I, I sat there just going like for me as a game designer and as a commercially focused game designer right like Kim Possible, what's the switch? It's a Disney property. It's great. I mean, talk about cartoons that hold up. Kim is awesome. Everybody should watch that. And I, I don't think it actually made its way to New Zealand because everyone here seems to go like, oh, I don't think I've seen that. I'm like, check it out. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I, I do consider an art form. Um, I don't know if I consider myself an artist. That's a big, weird question to unpack. Um, but there's a goal there. It's a very, it, it's a combination of, yeah, I really want people to have a good time in that. I want people to, to enjoy their experience. I want them to get something from it. I want us to tell a story that hopefully leaves them better than when they started in some way. Um, but it's really, and it's a team sport, <laughs> you know, it's, it's 20, 30, 40 people working on something. That was the first time for me that I played something that was made by effectively two people. At the time, I, I didn't really know Renault, um, uh, and I've since had the opportunity to, to become good friends with him. And he's, like I say, 
he's just an amazing human. But I knew Phil, and I could feel Phil's touch on that demo in that short amount of time. It was maybe 15 minutes long, maybe less. And I was sitting there, I think, yeah, it was on his laptop with a, a Xbox gamepad plugged in, and I was sitting on the floor of, I think, his maybe it was his bedroom even and i was just obsessed i was like i can't i can't understand i when i started i did not understand how it was making me feel this way because of that personal connection and that kind of opened my head a bit to this is the you know even at that time i i i you know i'd been been a so-called professional designer for five or six years at that point i'd shipped a bunch of games and you know i I like to think that i was pretty good at what i did and and i i really understood the medium in the space fairly well and all of a sudden that proved me wrong you know that was that was i didn't feel i didn't feel like that was something that i could have made you know and that was really that turned my head inside out pretty good nice it's really interesting here like um with art, I think there's always a shamanistic aspect, which is the, it's very simply the idea that someone or something offers you a route into some type of territory that is difficult to explore by yourself, but someone has one way or another put marker pegs there, and that part of the engine of that shamanistic aspect is some kind of ritual. And I think even though the language is different, you can see that when you start looking at games potentially or even interactive experiences in general potentially through that light um there's so much potential there's such a vast underexplored territory out there and we've built tiny tent cities at the very borders of it and we've made the very beginnings of blazing little trails and we've done some of it as essentially single person teams and some as larger but that there is there is territory out there that has not been navigated or explored or charted or in that sense ritualized and it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because that very much feels like to me the you know early steps into new things that once again grab us in ways that to some extent the mechanical problems never will mm. and and that to me I, i'm um um across this whole sort of combined field of we're all shaping and sparking experiences and to some extent we've, we've just begun which is incredible to me oh yeah i it, it's wacky to go you know the written word is the most direct expression that we have with this i guess the fewest impediments you know once other than you know obviously language and learning and and there's there's an enormous amount that i you know i think we all start to take for granted right like the fact that i can put my fingers to my keyboard and words come out is sort of like okay well that that's the easy bit right well it's only the easy bit because my mom and my dad took the time to make sure that i had that level of literacy um that i you know the the computer courses that i was able to take when i was a kid that were you know typing focus that i absolutely abhorred at the time but now i'm so glad that i can actually you know the fact that i can touch type 
you know, that's huge. All of that aside, putting pen to paper, putting words down, um, or making art, you know, again, pen to paper, brush to, to canvas, however you want to you do it, that is the, the fewest sort of layers between, there's no layer of abstraction there, right? Other than what, what you want to abstract. It's really, it's very, very direct. When you're making a game or a film or something else, there's so many layers prior to the end result. You know, even even if you've got an engine like Unity or Unreal, and it's like, great, I've got, you know, at least I don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's awesome. Well, you still got to do a million other things before you get down to like just the character moves around on screen, right? So the, the you know it's all the way back we were talking at the beginning about the nature of short iteration loops. You know the iteration loop on making something a game. We we constantly try to figure out how to make that shorter because the the more time you spend waiting for the machine to do its thing or trying to coax the machine to do its thing, the less time you're spending creating. And I think that's the that thing where just like when you when you can sit down and just start trying to write this space okay cool so we've got all of this history of language and literature and writing we have a very limited history of creating you know digital games certainly um but we have a a, a deep rich history of um you know oral storytelling of theater of performance that can be more interactive and there's a lot to learn from those spaces. Um, and then we go and flip the script again, right? So doing <laughs> the Magic Leap stuff, for example, we had to figure out, like, like, the first step is getting someone to put the headset on their face. And then as developers, like, who were, we, we had the early versions of the hardware that were very clunky and you had to literally put your chin inside of a hoop with a thing then keep your eyes in exactly the right place so you could actually see the content you know the fact that it I, I remember those early versions and then i remember when we got the very first sort of form factor that was the intended shipping form factor and it was like this is incredible this is you know and then how quickly that became mundane and became a yeah. it became part of the problem because you're like why is this damn thing not working right and it's like well there's a million reasons why it's not working and so you go through all of these hoops and then you come to your playtest and you watch someone with trepidation pick up the hardware for the first time you're like oh yeah this is not normal this is not yeah, this normal is... to other people <laughs> I was watching a talk that you gave I think at the NZXR dev conference last year and you were pointing out that to anyone who plays a lot of a certain type of game, the core thing of using a controller to move in 3D space, like in a first-person shooter, is natural. But we've all been doing it for 10 years. If you put a, a, a normal civilian in front of a controller and you say, with your left thumb, that's movement, and your right thumb, that's looking around, they will be lost. Yep. These we're, we're far too sophisticated in some of the ways that we present these experiences. And by the way, this is the perfect thing. So we, we have done exactly what we promised we'd do, which is we have re-altered the universe and completely reordered time. We are now back at the point at which you were at Magic Leap <laughs> doing these wonderful things. We, we, we have literally crossed the universe, which is perfect. I'd love us now to go from the work you did at Magic Leap and straight into the new stuff with NZXR and this broad umbrella idea of essentially extended reality mm. as a as an overall thing that kind of fits virtual reality mixed reality augmented reality 
um, this is where we're going. This is awesome. Sure. Yeah. It's so the magic leap side of things, uh, was a really remarkable journey. Um, and I, I can't, you know, thank Greg enough for involving me in it. Um, it was very challenging. Uh, there was, I learned a lot as a, I think as a leader in that time and as a developer in large part, it was the, it was, I have to describe it as trying to find a, a degree of comfort with ambiguity because everything was living with ambiguity. The goalposts were constantly shifting on us. We never quite knew when things were going to ship. We didn't quite know what was like our job. So I guess to, to, to set the context for that, the reason that the, the team existed, uh, aside from the, the, again, the personal relationships between Ronnie Abovitz, who's the CEO and, and Richard Taylor and Greg Broadmore and whatnot, because before Ronnie started Magic Leap, he, um, he wanted to make a, a funky sci-fi world. And he's like, who makes funky sci-fi worlds? Ah, oh, what a workshop does. And so he, he was already working with them on some, you know, developing some new IP stuff. Uh, and then the Magic Leap thing came along. And so the way that that relationship worked was that Magic Leap was intended to provide the engineers and Weta Workshop was meant to provide the artists. And that sort of tells you how much both groups knew about game development because they didn't have things like quality assurance and game designers and other things on that list, you know? Uh, and so initially what happened was the Magic Leap hired the engineers and the senior design team um, and Weta Workshop hired the artists and then eventually some producers and so on and so forth. And day to day, it was one team. Like we were just, you know, we, we were we were the, the Dr. Grodbortz team. We were making the Dr. Grodbortz Invaders, which is basically a, uh, it was intended to be a flagship title for Magic Leap, um, where robots invade your living room and they're trying to take over the world. Uh, unfortunately, they're kind of idiots. And, or fortunately, I guess for humans, they're kind of idiots. And we give you a ray gun to solve, or various ray guns to solve that problem. And the reason that that project needed to exist for Magic Leap was it needed to have, I mean, you can talk about killer apps and all the rest of it. And I, I don't, I don't believe that a game is really the killer app for something that's not inherently a game's platform. You know, it's not like we were make. you know, we, we sometimes said it was a little bit like we we're trying to make Halo for the Xbox or, you know, um, Super Mario for, for Nintendo or whatever. But really like the, the big difference there is that an Xbox or uh, an NES is, is fundamentally a game system. A spatial computer, which is what the Magic Leap is, is, is not that. It needs to do a whole bunch of different things. So, yeah, it was a bit weird. But the one thing that games will do every single time is eat every bit of processing power you can throw at it, right? So we will, we will take everything you give us, every bit of RAM, every bit of CPU, every bit of GPU, and we'll ask for more. Uh, and so as a test bed for what the platform could and should be capable of, it was perfect. Um, well, perfect is maybe a strong word, but it was certainly useful. And we would provide feedback to the... Uh, to the SDK and hardware teams and whatnot on, we were, we were essentially the first sort of developer consumers of the device, um, along with our colleagues at Magic Leap Studios who are based in Florida. And they made a, a really wonderful experience uh, called Create, which is really a, a big sandbox experience, which is very cool. Um, so for us, we were all about high performance, making stuff look and feel grounded in the world and, and whatnot. So it was a very interesting 
very interesting project to work on. Lots of new stuff to learn. Lots of things just to invent. How do we, how do we encourage people to scan the environment? And, you know, this comes, I guess, to the the sense of getting people to trust you enough to come and do to to participate in your world. You know, once you get them over the hump of, okay, I've put this thing on my face. Now what's going on? Well, we needed to know what the environment was that you were in, and so how do we get you to scan the environment in a way that makes sense? And for us, that was uh, we ended up putting these these floating buttons around that you could just walk around and push with your hand because the device has a, a six degree of freedom tracked uh, controller without external trackers, so it's all internally tracked, and then it also does gesture detection, so the the cameras on the device can can use gestures so you could walk around and either use the control or use your hand to just bump these buttons but by giving people something to go look for you know it got them to walk around the environment uh just a really really neat shader that we built that uh would fill in the world and that in and of itself was just kind of fun to like try and get the whole world to be painted with this thing um yeah it was it was very very interesting so we we built that project to be to be the test bed, to be a great marketing tool, to be a great experience, hopefully, um, and and that was that was quite quite a thing, um, but it was it was very it was very very challenging in so many ways that I kind of didn't expect going into it. I expected to be challenged by having a bunch of uncharted territory in front of us. I expected to be challenged by having in development hardware and software like literally it felt like building on quicksand sometimes because stuff was changing so fast and that's just the nature of it what i was unprepared for was just how hard it is especially as a team grew to to a larger size to make people feel comfortable that even though we didn't know what was actually going on that was okay like like feeling feeling comfortable in ambiguity was so tough and um and i don't i i don't believe for an instant that that we or i cracked it or anything like that but that was that was the 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 heavy lifting that i didn't expect to run into that's really interesting it's um um i think we've talked before it it crosses over some <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> It crosses over some of my experience. So I, I worked down in the city of Christchurch, New Zealand, which was devastated by a series of earthquakes. And the earthquake recovery effort, um, the, the, the initial response, the kind of um, literally pulling people out of buildings and that sort of stuff, which I wasn't part of, I, I have to be clear, that stuff is obviously incredibly stressful and amazingly challenging. Um, but in a, in a very backward sense that type of emergency response is actually quite well understood. And New Zealand, in that case, executed it pretty well. The much bigger challenge, um, tying very much to what you were saying, is after that, you have this extended period, years, and you don't know how long this period is. And what was happening down in Christchurch was a lot of the existing social and political structures had come under enormous strain. Um some things had broken some things were breaking and the biggest challenge for our teams being among that was the exact thing that you say which is on a day-by-day basis we know for a fact that this is a chaotic super changing environment we have some sense of what we're supposed to be trying to achieve but in between those two things 
it's going to be different tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and we are never going to be clear on what is actually going on the level of ambiguity is going to be terrifying and we were um a lot of the leaders down there had some form of military background and this was actually really useful because they are specifically trained in that and they would say exactly what you're saying by far the most stressful thing even more stressful than earthquakes themselves is that human beings cannot tolerate ambiguity over time it stresses them and it is the the only solution not sorry not the only solution one of the main solutions is then that you need temporarily charismatic leaders because people put faith in the leader and the leader then sometimes just has to say hey it's going to be all right and everyone believes the leader you have these kind of workarounds for the fact that human beings absolutely cannot tolerate like long-term ongoing ambiguity and i'm 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 really interested in hearing like 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 how did that feel? Especially I I don't have any insider knowledge about that um, um, obviously, but the kind of final stages where magic leap from the outside looked like it kind of unraveled. That was yeah, <laughs> that was very unfortunate, um, very strange, and made more strange I think by being in lockdown. You know we were sure. So when we got the news, it was the end of April. Um, and it was, I think the 22nd or 23rd of April or something like that last year, uh, things had felt weird and, and, and certainly, you know, if you've, if you've been inside of large organizations before or even small ones and you, and you can get a sense that things are not going well. And we were very removed from so much of that by the, literally just the physical distance, you know, I think. I've talked to some friends and, and, you know, colleagues who worked at headquarters in Florida and they had a very different experience of it where they, they kind of felt this sense of things were going a bit off, you know, off the rails more than usual. Cause we were regularly just way off the rails. Um, and, and so they, they had a, a different sense of that. They were in very different meetings. We were very isolated from it. So it came, we knew things were not great. We knew that the company needed to pivot, and focus on enterprise, which was a, a thing a lot of us had been saying for a long time. There was not a consumer market for this device. Uh, there was not going to be a consumer market for this device for some time because, you, you know, I'd read something in the press where they'd be like, oh, it's this going to replace your iPhone. And I'm like, no, like I, where, how, what? No, uh, the iPhone didn't replace the iPhone. The iPhone was added to an ecosystem that was literally more than a billion devices large at the time, right? There were, there were cell phones all over the world. Nokia, everybody remember Nokia? It was, you know, the big player in the space. They made millions of phones a week. Um, there was a clear and distinct need there and the iPhone and not even the first generation, like the first gen iPhone, people maybe forget this, but it, people made fun of it. Like there was a lot of just like people wrote it off and, and it was a thing. It wasn't until kind of the 3GS, I guess, that or the iPhone 3 or 3GS that yeah. that really I think it it sunk in and it got it got good enough to really change the landscape in such a dramatic way. But but that's you know again there were there was also the Nexus devices from Google and like lots of stuff was happening. All that to say that was a market that the iPhone entered that already existed. There was a, there was a consumer market. We're still, you know, we can see it with VR as well, right? There is, there is a growing consumer VR market, but it is still fundamentally niche in many ways. 
and so the idea that a magic leap one would appear and suddenly be a consumer device that sold millions was like what (laughs) no (laughs) like anyways so that's that's a whole other whole other conversation um yeah so i think what ended up happening for us is we felt that pressure and we knew that you know strategically it would be very important for us as a studio to be a productive part of that change um we were we started working on multi-user applications uh right after we did um dr Grobert's invaders at the game developers conference in 2019 um we showed a four-player multiplayer experience that was basically a tea party followed by a ray gun fight that was super fun uh we demoed that at the unity booth and people were it loved it they had a great time running around and laughing at each other and pouring tea all over each other's heads and it was it was super cool from there that gave us this foundation to say okay well multi-user is really the way forward and and that's you know not surprising but away we go we started building effectively a productivity tool that was born initially out of a need that we had for the artists to be able to see their work on device very quickly. One of the big challenges when you're making uh, content, digital content to go into the real world is that your authoring environment is a 2D screen. The real world is 3D, right? So you're working in Maya or Max or whatever, and you're building this 3D model on a 2D screen, and then you're pulling it off of there and putting it onto a device and seeing it, you know, represented in the real world. And it doesn't look like you expect for any number of reasons. And if your iteration loop is really, really long, which it was for us, you don't do it very often, right? Like you would, you know, if, if you think about how, when you make a game, say you make a tree and the tree needs to go into the game, it goes into an environment uh and then you need to go and find that tree in the game now if you're building that game on a 2d screen you'll have a bunch of tools hopefully if you're if you're set up for it um certainly hasn't always been true in some of the games i've worked on um where you can very quickly go oh where's this where's the tree where's the thing okay cool it looks right it fits or oh it doesn't i can iterate change that and push a new version and and the iteration loop is quite tight if instead you're making say a ray gun uh, actually, Reagan's probably a bad example because that one was pretty easy to see because it was in your hand. But it was like if you're making a change to one of the robots in the game or something like that, well, you've got to make that change. You've got to push it into a build. You've got to make the build, get the build on device, load the game up, get into the point where it is, and then go find it, and then look at it while the other robots are shooting at you, etc., etc. Right? So you, we would make test scenes that had nothing but the bots in them and that sort of stuff, but it still required making a build and pushing. And so the, the iteration loop was so long that most artists just didn't do it because it was too slow for them. So this started off as a tool for the artists to um, be able to push an asset directly from Unity up to an asset server and then just load it on device immediately. And we started as rough as guts as that first version was, we saw the artists start using the devices far more and the iteration loop became much, much tighter. The other great advantage, and you'll see this with anything where you've got, you know, any kind of head-worn display if it's a single player experience you're trying to get feedback from your art director and so one person has the device on their heads and they find the thing that they're looking for and they load it up and they say okay it's there and they say okay everything is as i expect it to look cool then they take the device off they pass it to the art director they put it on their head they look at it and go 
oh yeah okay that looks really good no i want more red over here and really i think what's important is that the the shape language on the back end of, of that is isn't working let's let's try like raising it up a bit and so the other person's taking notes usually in their head and then the the headset gets passed back to them they look at it and said oh yeah yeah this red bit over here nobody else can see what you're seeing right so it's terrible so having that as a multi-user <laughs> experience where literally everybody could look at the same thing and then we added things like pen tools so you could like scribble on stuff and it just naturally started to expand from there it was huge um we ended up using it uh, even in its prototype form with weta workshop um when they were building out the um the Weta Workshop Unleashed exhibit that just opened up in uh, Auckland. So they had a, a, a bigotry of a castle, a zebra sculpt of that, which is really cool. We, we got the sculpt from them, uh, decimated it a bit because it was, of course, massively high poly for, for you know, a physical production piece. So we brought the, brought the poly can down so it could perform well on device. And then we went to the warehouse where they were staging the build, put this castle in place, in its mm, correct nice. physical location and the the team was able to walk around that thing and see it as though see it as it was intended to be seen by the, an audience member walking through the the event and they were making notes all over it about things that were working and weren't working i remember uh one of the sculptors was like he was looking he's like hey um that waterfall i've been spending a lot of time on i literally can't see it unless i stand inside <laughs> the inside the castle which nobody can do and so and it was going to be a fairly complicated i think addition to the piece and so they ended up just like cutting an entire feature from this thing because they realized that nobody would ever see it um and so yeah it was a uh, was quite an experience so so that was yeah that was where we started to really focus our efforts um you know along with some very cool location-based experience stuff which started to go away but yeah, over time, the signals started to get weird. As we went into lockdown, it got weirder again. We just kind of kept working because what else can you do? Um, we figured that there would be some cuts to the company. We weren't, we had no inkling of how big those cuts would be. Okay. And so having this project that very clearly fit the strategic goals of the company felt like the best thing that we could do to protect ourselves as a team. Um, because surely like, they're not going to get rid of the team that's making a high quality application that solves a strategic need, right? Not so much, turns out. Um, so <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that, you know, we got the, we didn't even get the call. That was the bit that really pissed me off about that whole experience. I woke up at five in the morning, uh, just happened to. Normally I would roll over, go back to sleep. For some reason I looked at my phone and I had messages from folks and saying, hey, are you okay? And I was like, what? Did I sleep through another earthquake? Like, my mom has a GeoNet on her phone. Uh, back, you know, so when an earthquake happens anywhere, you know, kind of near Wellington, I get a text from my mom. Are you okay? I'm like, mom, it was like a 3.5, 40 clicks off the coast. It's fine. Um, but then somebody had sent me a link to this um, news article on the Magic Leap website, and the headline was charting a new course. And I didn't have to read the yeah. rest of it. I just knew. I knew that we were done. Um, and we didn't have a call scheduled with the CEO until one in the afternoon. Um, and so we had all morning to go, our, like, what's happening? How, how badly are we hosed? Uh, and we were all working from home under lockdown level four. So we couldn't 
hang out in the office together. We were just hanging out on, you know, like hangouts calls and going through our emails and looking for contacts because we didn't know when our email access would get turned off. And it's like, what about all these people that I need that, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd like to be able to continue talking to? How do we find these folks? Uh, We were a a discord server got spun up by one of the U S crew very quickly that got populated. And we started hearing stories of people literally just being told you're out and, and being escorted out of the building. And we were just like, what? (laughs) So not quite fired by press release, but not that far off in terms of a pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, um, with that, without dragging the conversation sideways um, um i also worked at a large international company and the the final days of my stay at that large international company were, were also things that will stay with me forever and it's it's amazing how how much just not even the kind of being let go or whatever happens but just the way in which those maybe 48 hours are handled have such a, a deep deep impact mm. Mm. yeah yeah no but in you know better news um the end result, you know, as, as weird as that was, and as unfortunate as that was, um, you know, we, 10 of us stuck, there was 14 people employed by Magic Leap here in New Zealand. Um, we all got let go at the same time. Uh, and everybody, as far as I know, has found um, new gainful employment, which is cool. Uh, and 10 of us stuck together to form NZXR as, you know, we just, we had spent some of us up to five, six years together. We really enjoy nice. working together. And, and that is, you know, as someone who's been on a lot of teams over a lot of time, when you get a team where people just gel and things are working well and, and whatnot, you, we didn't want to lose that. And we didn't want to lose what we had spent all of our time learning. And I think that was, the, that was a real, like, it would have felt really unfortunate to just let all that drift you know just to just have a blow away yeah. in the wind and you know individually we probably we we certainly wouldn't have had trouble finding jobs individually we were very fortunate to be a lot of people were coming after us which was nice this is nice to feel wanted uh, especially after an event like that but we we knew that what we had learned together and the the time and money that had been invested in us as a group it felt it felt like a real waste to just let that go and so we, we tried to stick together and we managed to, we got our first gig, uh, that gave us a chance to, you know, start working on some cool stuff. And now, you know, as stressful as it is trying to find new work and do all the other things, it's, it's cool. Like we're, we're building neat stuff and we're, we're continuing nice. to exercise those skills and to learn new ones. And so, you know, and on top of it, we really thought about like how we operate as a group and we're like, well, we don't, we don't really have like CEO and those, you know. so we're just a collective, you know, it's 10 people. Everybody's nice. on the same, same level. And I, I know that that is not, you know, I've been, I've, as I say, I've been part of many, many teams and, and hierarchy and structure and stuff for lots of reasons is very, very important. And I would not try to do something like this, like right out the gates with people I didn't know. The fact that we already were a team, that we had a culture of communication and openness with each other, that's what made it possible. Uh, nice. You're like a bunch of astronauts and aerospace engineers basically leaving all the old ones and building your own space program. It's fantastic. Uh, well, we're still building other people's rocket ships at the moment, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so then now, with 
with the NZXR collective that you have, you have a group of wildly skilled people who, as you say, have been around for a while, who have a, have a deep knowledge in this extended reality space. What What's the ambition? Where, where do you want to take this all? Not totally sure, to be honest. I mean, we want to, nice. we want to keep working. The, the primary goal we have is to keep working out the edge of what's possible. That's really... Hmm. That's the thing we enjoy the most. Um, so then, James, what is possible? And this is where I want the big brain of James to start <laughs> telling me the crazy shit about XR. Because I, I, I have a civilian's view of all this, and it fascinates me, but it, it is not my world. Mm. But if, if, if it was 3 a.m. and we were spinning wild stories of the future, <laughs> what, is the, what is the edge going to be of, of XR? That's a super hard question for so, so many reasons, right? The, in, in many ways, the technical side of things is actually starting to become better and better understood. And I feel like it's actually a pretty clear path now through to a consumer grade glasses that are worn day to day by pretty much everybody and effectively replacing your phone. I don't know when that future happens. It could be five years, it could be 10 years, but it's a pretty clear path through to that now. And it's it, there's enough proven technology and enough people working in the space, it's going to happen. The bits that we don't know, coming at it from a design perspective, we don't currently have a good, not good's not the right term, but we don't have a, a mature or developed at all you know, design language for these things. What it, what are the common interaction models that make sense that work? We're seeing a lot of development in that space in VR, of course. Um, and there's some really exciting stuff being done by team. Uh, I say team. I think it's one person doing most of the development on Aardvark um, and a couple of people doing Pluto VR and things like that, where they're really looking at adding AR to VR effectively because VR currently works and you can learn a lot of stuff and build a lot of things there that will then translate into AR once that becomes, you know, a head-worn AR norm happens. Um, so some exciting stuff in that space, but we, yeah, we, do, we don't have very much there. You know, we invented a ton of different ways of doing things on Dr. Grobert's Invaders and then we tossed out so much of it along the way that just didn't work we tried so many things that were for technical reasons for physiological reasons you know the the, the classic gorilla arm problem if you try and hold your arms up out in front of you for any length of time it's it's not comfortable right you know um somebody yeah, I think, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not, but uh, there was an interview or something with Tom Cruise ages ago, and they talked about Minority Report, and he said that that was actually one of the hardest films he's ever worked on, and the hardest single scene was the one, yeah, where he's manipulating the the information, you know, with his hands, and he's got to keep his arms up. He had to keep his arms up across multiple takes over multiple hours, and he said, his, you know, he's a super fit dude, and he was like, my arm's died he, he said it was just they had to they had to break for sh break shooting for a while let him he just sat in a chair and basically like let his arms like get iced or something i don't know so anyways that, that figuring out like what those things are um figuring out accessibility in that space right because not yeah, everyone no, is able to move absolutely. in the same way um not everyone is able to see in exactly the same way not everyone can hear in exactly the same way and so what are the um I often call them like graceful fallbacks, right? So uh, this primary interaction method didn't work for you for 
any reason at all, uh, wh what do we do instead so that the experience simply doesn't break for you? You know, how do we allow you to continue having the experience? Those were all things to learn. Um, and then the big scary stuff, the real big scary stuff is the cultural side. And that I don't think anyone's ready for. Uh, and, I, and I don't, to be honest, I don't know that it's possible to be ready for it. I think it's important to be deliberate about it, to make choices that, as far as we can tell, are going to be healthy choices and, and forward-facing choices that maintain inclusivity, that make these worlds that we're going to be adding to our own ones that we want to participate in that make the overall world a better place because you're effectively giving people superpowers you know superpowers of perception of information of, of those yeah. sorts of things so just to ground that for a moment what um what what does that potentially look like even on the sort of medium term like when you say that there there's going to be at least some kind of significant cultural change driven by in part people wandering around with eyepieces or something that expands their abilities in mm. some way. What are some concrete ways that, that that looks like or some concrete problems that you can see us having to navigate? So the, the example I often give just as a starting point is if you think about your mobile phone now, which is effectively a supercomputer in your pocket that's connected to a global information network. Yeah, speaking of Asimov, by the way. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, <laughs> but people don't, if you think about your phone and how you use maps on your phone, for example, when you walk out the front door of your house, the way that you used to do that was you'd have a very clear idea of where you were going. You would, you know, if it's a place you hadn't been before, you needed to look it up on a, a physical map. You then either needed to commit to memory or something else um, or take the map with you or whatever. You don't do any of that anymore, right? You punch in the address that tells you how to get there, and and that is a complete sea change in how we navigate and interface with the world. I experienced it in a very intense way um, over the period of about a decade. My very first trip to Japan in mm. 2006, I guess it was. I didn't have a, I didn't even have a cell phone in when I was living in Montreal, uh, but I rented one in Japan because I had about 12 phone numbers written down in my notebook for people I knew or friends of friends. That was my lifeline to like anybody I actually knew over there. I had printouts for the places I was staying and I had a phrase book and a map of Tokyo and that was it. And I had a great time and really enjoyed my, yeah, really, really enjoyed my time over there. But when I think about how I navigate that space three years later, yeah, 2009, I think it was. I had a Nexus One in my pocket. Um, and I had Google Maps, which were not great at the time and certainly not great and didn't have translations and whatnot. But even that meant that the way that I could navigate the city just got turned inside out. It was, it was so much easier. And then uh, I was there again in 2018 or whatever with a modern phone with translation, I was able to point my phone at signage in Japanese and get a crappy but functional translation into English so I could make other choices. And again, dramatically changed the way that I interacted with that space and the people around me and everything else. So, you know, that's that's a that's a 10 year, 15 year sort of, of sea change in terms of just that simple interaction. When you go to something like glasses where the information is consistently presented to you where 
it is driven by both your physical location, your own requests, what the glasses, because the glasses have to be, um, they've got cameras on them and the cameras are there to look at the world all the time in order to maintain what we call head pose. So knowing where the head, where the head position is. Um, and so you have to have four, usually four cameras at least, um, to cover most of that and maintain that head pose. So that, that is actively evaluating the world as you just walk around where it starts to get extra strange is you know the the example people sometimes give of you know like a visual linkedin sort of thing right so it's like i look at you and facial recognition instantly tells me ah this is colin and um here's his you know his current job is this and whatever and it's like it you know that's actually it's a combination of creepy but also potentially incredibly useful in certain social situations especially for like if you're someone who's face blind, for example, that could be massive in terms of your your how you again interact with people in the world. But you can pretty quickly see the downsides of that as well, right? The the you know what does it mean to privacy to um, to knowing? I mean, the the privacy implications alone are quite staggering. Then we get past sort of those obvious cases, I think. And, and I don't want to diminish them at all. I think they're huge. It's just like that's a literally a several-hour conversation in and of itself. When we start to talk about access to information, who gets access to what? Um, Adam Greenfield is an author and speaker, interesting guy, um, who has he's written a couple of really interesting books. Um, but he talked about like what it means to have a smart city and the internet of things etc where public and private space are mediated by digital technologies in a way that can include or exclude people based on effectively invisible information you don't know what you don't know right Mm -hmm. if i have an overlay of the world that tells me I'm struggling to think of a really good example, but if I have an overlay of the world that gives me effectively privileged information and I can exclude other people from that or by default people are excluded from it, I now have more information than you that you don't even know about and what I choose to do with that and how I choose to participate in civil society as a result of that information will be dramatically different than if I didn't have that information. And so you can effectively create through those information methods, classes of people who are, you know, privileged or not, as the case may be, even having access to those glasses, right? Because they're not going to be cheap. You know, it's yeah. it's going to take quite, a, especially that first generation, second, third generation, even it's going to take a long time before we get to the, you know, equivalent of the $50 smartphone. Um, and so by their nature, the initial adoption of these devices will be amongst privileged people. And so so an expanding, really an expanding and increasingly sophisticated version of the digital divides that exist already, mm-hmm. but perhaps on a, on, on a much more direct thing, because. Um, as you say, you go from if if you're wealthy and powerful and have access to information that's stored somewhere else and you can go and access to it, then you get phones. You're walking around with a phone in your pocket. Now, if you if you have glasses or something, your entire experience of the world is literally mediated by essentially your power position within the information structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and that yeah right that's really interesting yeah so you know and then there's um uh there's also like the dystopian version of just ads on everything right if you think about like what's it like to navigate the internet right now with um banner ads and shit all over the place and it's just gross now uh i would really recommend people check out um uh, Keiichi Matsuda's work, uh, Hyper Reality, I think it's called. He's done a couple of videos um, that, yeah, they're terrifying. You know, I remember, I remember one of them came out shortly after I started at Magic Leap, and I sent it around, and that was when the company was maybe 200 people or something. And I sent it around with the subject, uh, "This is what happens if we fail," because nice. to me that was, you know, we're, we were building this future technology. And that's carrying on. And I said, you know, this to me is a real problem. Like, how are we going to prevent this from an architectural standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from a, you know, like, I don't want that world. I don't want to see that happen. Um, I don't like, I would not wear the glasses if that was the world that was being presented to me. Um, and so there, there, there are aspects like that. I mean, Black Mirror certainly digs into that stuff a bunch as well. And that's a thing, but so much of it is hard to, you know, it, because we just don't know. We, we can't know until we get there and we start experiencing it. So even the things that I'm describing, the things that you see in like episodes of Black Mirror or whatever, to me, those are just scratching the surface because we, we, we simply don't have sufficient experience to understand how right or how wrong this can go. That's really interesting. It's, as you say, like, um, from a kind of public policy perspective, I think a lot of the long-term structural change comes in things that um, probably aren't things that can fit into a Black Mirror episode. They're just kind of background structural stuff. We we also did quite a lot of work with smart cities over the past few years. There's a digital agency that I'm associated with that has looked very deeply into that. And one of the core things you see is you think of the core idea of a smart city really being a... Um, and an urban environment that is strongly linked up to a lot of different data sources and data feeds that gives you a very rich information overview of everything happening in your city. Mm. Um, everything from kind of street level infrastructure to your pipes, to your traffic flows, to your temperature and your climate, all these sort of things. That's, that's my kind of shorthand for a smart city, a, a, a wired city. If you look at the practical steps of getting from where most cities are today to this kind of smart city thing in a positive way, a huge amount of the problem is on on the government and regulator side is not so much the information feeds themselves. It's hooking everything up and making it coherent and having the the kind of policy continuity to build this into everything consistently and make good use of it. So it's the classic government problem where government tends to have at least as much information as almost anyone else, but it can't usefully make use of it and it can't be an active player in these type of rollouts. And so what you then have is you have things like essentially city-level governments get completely outmaneuvered by much faster players who are usually only going after a straight-up commercial imperative. Um, you see this in transport all the time where there's a, there's a strong potential for, in theory, really good multimodal transport, which is literally just you can move through the city without worrying about sort of the transitions from things like buses to taxis to walking, that, that all becomes really easy. And a few cities like Berlin have made real strides in this. Tokyo as well. You can just kind of move through Tokyo using your smartphone at the moment in, in, in this really beautiful way. Most other cities aren't there yet. 
but as most cities try to get multimodal transport going, which involves hooking up a lot of data feeds, getting agreements between different service providers, all this sort of stuff, they run into the limitations of their own capability as regulators and administrators. And into this space tends to come very focused actors like Uber, who have the capability, like they, they will literally go up to cities and say, hey, we'll wire everything up for you. We'll give you all your data feeds. All we want is to basically bring out our vehicle fleets into this equation. But that's a very difficult bargain for a government to strike. So you have these, like, and this isn't anything that's usefully going to be in, as you say, some like a Black Mary episode, but a lot of these larger structural questions around not just the data itself and the information itself, but who gets to usefully make use of it, who does get access to it, not even who, who controls the data, but who gets to present the data feeds in a useful collective way that achieves outcomes. And at the moment, my take is, to be honest, a lot of bureaucracies are simply having circles run around them on these very important long-term structural tasks. Yep. I think the the understanding that the code is eating the city is a, is a really difficult one for people yes. to get their heads around. Um, a friend of mine, Ben Severni, uh, is the um, president of the Foundation for Public Code. Um, they're based out of Amsterdam, and they're doing some really fascinating work around taking things like the data structures and the software that runs like Amsterdam's tram network, for example, mm. um, and open sourcing it. So pulling it out of, of its own little bubble, cleaning it up, documenting it, hopefully improving it, and then making it publicly available so that other city, cities can learn from each other and start sharing yeah. those kinds of infrastructural things that are code-driven, where you can literally you know, grab the Git repo and go, all right, well, how does Amsterdam, which is quite functional in a public transport sense, actually, like, at the lowest level, i.e. the software level that's, that's running behind the scenes and everything, how does this function, you know? And so... Those are those are the types of data streams, the the types the, sorry the types of information that I think turns into a fascinating possibility space for something like augmented reality, where if you can see how all of these things tie together, right? Seeing is believing. Until you until you've seen something, experienced, and whatever else, making making the invisible visible. Um, for lack of a better term, but making that sort of like this is this is what this is what this is how the, this is the um, this is how the city lives and breathes. You know, this is the, and and mm. being able to actually see that happen through the direct outcomes of the choices being made at a software level, um, and then how that all ties together. Uh, you know, in person with the physical and watching that sort of stuff happen around you, you know, I think part of this is probably a, a naive hope, but it would be, it would be amazing to kind of get to this sense of how the city is living and breathing around you in a way that it in, enhances your experience of the city. Because I, I think about like that, that first trip I took to Tokyo, um, or the first trip I took to, to a lot of new cities, um, pre, you know, map on my smartphone era. I think I had a much deeper connection to those places um, because I had to 
I had to explore them. I had to understand enough about them to navigate them. And I had to do it quickly if I wanted to be on time for whatever the heck I was trying to do, you know, like wherever I wanted to be like, I, you know, so I think that was a really, you know, it's such a, um, when, when I think about how I experience Tokyo now, it's, it's much, it's mediated through my phone and, and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I have to remind myself to, to put the phone in my pocket, to ignore it, to, Look to literally, to literally raise my eyes up, especially in Tokyo, because holy smokes, the amount of time you can spend going like, where the heck is this bar? Oh, it is on the fourth floor and the sign is up on the sixth floor. And if you don't look up, you don't see it. And there's nothing, no indication at ground level, better figure that out. Um, you know, I think that's the, to me that's the sort of the great goal in a lot of ways of the mixed reality spatial computing sort of space is to give us the superpowers of our phones but keep us in the world and that's that's my hope i think for a lot of this stuff and it's certainly like at magic leap that was a big part of the mission and the vision was how do we how do we keep people you know in the world and enhance their knowledge and understanding of it without removing them from it or mediating it in such a way that they're looking at an abstraction when the real thing is all around them. Nice. And NZXR is, is clearly one way or another aims to, aims to be part of that fascinating transition. We certainly hope so. I think as we, you know, with every project that we approach, we are, there are, we haven't codified it yet. We probably should sit down and have a real good think about it, but it, it's it's a it's an extension of what we did previously and and the work that we've all done together over the years. And a big part of how we think about this stuff is how are people going to interface with it? How are people going to enjoy it? How are people? How could someone be harmed by it? Is a really important nice. question that that I feel does not get ever get asked nearly enough by people building tech. Um, and so, yeah, those are, those are, those are for us, those are principles I think that, that we continue to, to strive towards. And I, I feel like, yeah, we probably should put that down in, in writing somewhere and try and understand it better, pull it out of our, you know, pull it out of the gut feeling and make it real. Nice. Um, because I think there is a, certainly an obligation, at least I certainly feel an obligation to keep people from, there's a lot of boosterism in any technology space, right? People, people, you, you have, and some of that is just absolutely necessary. You, you have got to believe that the impossible thing you're talking about can actually be achieved or you'll never even try. So, so in its own, by its very nature, you have to, you know, you have to, I guess hop, skip and jump into the magic circle and try and keep yourself there. But by doing so, the the great the great weakness I see with, with with so much of this is that people don't ask themselves that question of like who does this hurt? You know, who does this help and who does this hurt? Because it's there's always fallout and um, I think it, it's incumbent on us as people working in this space and certainly we're you know we're a relatively new unknown company at this point um, we you know the the I guess the the high, the high profile of Magic Leap is what gave us the initial visibility that allowed us to get started and that's all well and good but as we you know continue to talk in public about what we do when we can and where we can 
you know, fingers crossed we get to do some more of that because um, it's always hard to just not talk about these projects. I think it, it's incumbent on us to 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 be that to to say out loud how how are we hurting people? You know, have you stopped and asked how are you hurting someone with what you're doing? Because there's always going to be an answer for that, and if you're not asking the question and all you're doing is spinning the positive all the time, then you're not only you're going to hurt more people you're not going to understand how you did it in the first place which makes unwinding it so much harder um as we certainly have seen with you know with social media uh that's you know i think i think a lot of game developers a lot of people who were involved in like mmo communities and early muds and any sort of community management side of things really over 20 30 years of experience in this stuff in games it's just like well what the hell did you think was going to happen you didn't enforce your own terms yeah. you know and it's it's all of those when when you don't when you don't have consistent rules and you don't abide by those rules they go out the window and the the end result is wow i wonder how things got so bad <laughs> the accumulated set of our own decisions mm. um thinking about externalities that that is also i have to, I have to say a very Canadian New Zealand thing to be doing, which, which, which sounds awesome. Um, mate, this has been an incredible conversation. We, we have gone for just over two hours, which is remarkable. And it, it feels like it flew by. Um, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Where can people find out about you, James Everett and about NZXR? Where would you point them to? Uh, you can find NZXR at nzxr.dev online. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as James Everett. Uh, should be pretty findable. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not good at it. It's mostly pictures of my dog these days. I don't know, Twitter. That means you are good at Twitter uh, by my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm just uh, at James E on Twitter. Um, and uh, James at nzxr.dev will always find me for email. Awesome, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.